I'm Ryan Jacobson, and I get to be one of the pastors here at Alamo Heights United Methodist Church, and I'd ask you to remain standing and pray with me the Shema. This is a prayer that we pray in each of our services here at Alamo Heights United Methodist Church because it is a prayer that Jesus would have prayed multiple times each day, including every time that he approached the text within his synagogue services. And so we, as Christ followers, try to be like Christ in this practice and join him in this prayer. So please pray with me. Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Amen. Now hear these words as I read to you from the 11th chapter of the letter from Paul to the Roman churches. Now I am speaking to you Gentiles inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. I glorify my ministry in order to make my own people jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If the part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. And if the root is holy, then the branches also are holy. But if some of the branches were broken off and you, a wild olive shoot, were grafted in their place to share the rich roots of the olive tree, do not boast over the branches. If you do boast, remember that it is not you that support the root, but the root that supports you. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him to receive a gift in return? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. This is a portion of the story of God told for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. We've begun a new sermon series here at the church in which we're once again exploring our core values. Our church, Alamo Heights United Methodist, expresses our mission as partnering with God in, uh, in bringing the kingdom of heaven to earth by making disciples of Jesus the Christ. And our core values inform and guide us as we seek to fulfill this mission as a community of Christ followers. Our church at both a local and a global level, has gone through and is continuing to go through a fair amount of transition. At the local level, in the coming months, we will lose our senior pastor as he moves forward into a new calling. We'll be receiving a new senior pastor after that. And at the global level, next month there's a special session of the General Conference of the United Methodist Church, and in this specially called session, our delegates will be voting on several proposals on what we do and how we move forward with the UMC with issues of LGBTQIA inclusion. We are facing change in this church. We don't know what will happen with the vote next month. We probably have hopes and expectations, but we don't know. We don't know what type of person that we'll get as our next leader here in this church. And again, we probably have hopes and expectations, but we don't know. 
And so as we set forward on this journey of change, our mission and our core values of sonship and daughterhood, text, action, relationship, and spirit can inform and guide us. This exploration of these core values helps us to remember how we've grown as a community, who this community is today, and who we hope to be as we continue to walk this path of transformation. Dinah started us off last week with the S, sonship and daughterhood. This core value tells us that we're beloved, that before anything else is said about us, it says that we are good. This love and goodness is inherent. This is what we come from. This is what we work from. This is not something that we strive after. We already have the love and acceptance. And we awaken to it more and more as we continue to explore our relationship with the divine. This week, we explore the second letter, the T for text. Now, when we talk about text here at Alamo Heights United Methodist Church, we're not talking just about the text itself. We're not talking only about the scripture or the Bible. We're also talking about the way that we approach this text, the way that we study this text, the way that we teach it, the way that we hold it, the way that we regard it, the way that we pray it, and the way that we live it. This text of the Hebrew and Christian scriptures contains many stories that taken together testify to an awakening and great, uh, enhancing relationship between us and our life with God. The story of God that's found in these texts is ancient. And people have been retelling these stories for thousands of years. And for these thousands of years, the people of God have found meaning and purpose for their own stories. The first psalm says that blessed is the one that meditates on this text day and night. The word used for meditate here is the word haggah. Everybody say haggah. With a little bit of viciousness in it, haggah. This word haggah is used to describe a lion that's eating a carcass. So meditate might be one way to translate it, but it might be a little strange. A lion at the carcass chews every bit of meat off the bone that it possibly can. So blessed is the one that haggahs this text day and night. So if we're going to haggah this text, we'll begin in the beginning. Someone wrote something down. That's right, my friends. My brilliant insight into the text is that someone at some point wrote something down. My friends, Daryl and Chris and I have been able to lead a discussion for the last four years here at the church and at Haven for Hope that revolves around the question, what is the Bible? And every iteration that we've done of this discussion begins with this statement. Somebody wrote something down. This Bible did not fall from the sky. It was not discovered under a rock or in a cave. It is not the divine dictates of God. And God didn't take somebody's hand and make them write what he wanted. Some faith traditions do have stories like this of their sacred scriptures, but our tradition does not. Our tradition says that real people living in real places at real times with real agendas and real feelings and real thoughts and real experiences wrote these books. Divinely inspired, yes, certainly. But we wrote this down. 
In some instance, someone sat down and decided to write a letter to a community far away. In others, what's written expresses some kind of genealogical tale. In other instances, a poet is trying to find the words to express the ecstasy of epiphany or the anguish of loss and doubt. And sometimes the story that's finally written down has been coming from a, from a long oral tradition, passed from generation to generation verbally before it finally hits a page. Someone wrote something down. We're going to briefly explore the different contexts of the central, central story of the Bible this morning. And by looking at these different contexts, we'll see why this is such an important point. Now, I can't overstate how important an understanding of the story of the Exodus is to the understanding of the rest of the Bible. The Exodus is the blueprint or the template by which the rest of the Bible takes shape. From the story of Adam and Eve to the story of Jesus to the apocalyptic vision of John and the book of Revelation, Exodus is the foundational knowledge that we need to understand it all. This Exodus story begins with the people enslaved in Egypt. They have no home of their own, and we're not told whether or not that they, they remember the promises that were given to their forefathers. As the injustice of their slavery grows, the people cry out to God, and God hears their cry. A deliverer is prepared and called in the person of Moses, and a promise of deliverance is given to the people of God. Now, this deliverance process is shocking and full of turmoil and terror, depending on which side you are on. And as the plagues befall Egypt, Pharaoh's heart is hardened over and over, and his resolve to continue his injustice in the name of self-preservation and self-enrichment grows. When finally the tenth plague comes, and even Pharaoh's household is not spared, the Pharaoh has had enough, and he finally caves. The people of God are finally allowed to seek refuge from their slavery. And with the final act of deliverance at the Sea of Reeds, the people of God are delivered from their burden. On the bank of that sea, a celebration of the power of God is begun by Miriam and her tambourine. But this story of deliverance doesn't end here. More than 400 years of slavery has stolen the identity from this people. While the people have come out of Egypt, it still will take some time to take Egypt out of the people. They walk into this wilderness, this desert, and their own trials begin. At Mount Sinai, they meet God, their true deliverer, and they're terrified. Moses must then act as the mediator between these people and God. A covenant is made, though, but the people quickly make known that their slave identity remains as they make and worship a golden calf while Moses is still on the mountain. Moses intercedes, and the people begin their wandering. As they go from that place over and over and over again, they fail to trust that it's God that has delivered them, that God is still with them every step of the way. They carry a tabernacle, the home of God. They carry it with them from place to place, and they see the glory of God leading them from camp to camp. And yet they continue to fail to trust even Moses demonstrates his own roots within the Egyptian system. And when God asks him to speak, he instead strikes, showing his own struggle with his identity, 
and being more like Pharaoh than he should. And there is no place for Pharaoh in the promised land. So an entire generation of the people of God pass away in this desert before they finally stand at the threshold of the next chapter of their story. The themes that find their birth in this narrative of the Exodus carry into the rest of the Bible. The rabbis take this narrative and use it to define what the kingdom of God is, saying that it comes in three parts. The first is that God comes in power. The second is that we celebrate that power. The third is that we listen. The theme of the covenant faithfulness of God dawns in this story. God's desire to deliver and to redeem and to save is established in this narrative. The people of God's response to this salvation is found within this narrative. Now, as we explore this narrative, I've given you one context of the story, albeit a highly edited version of it. This first context is the narrative as it actually reads. This context tells us what the author wanted us to know about the events and the people in the event described. There is, however, a second context to consider when we explore the narrative. Our church tradition holds that Moses wrote the Exodus narrative. This tradition may be one of our crayons. If you remember Daryl's short lesson last week about our crayons and holding them with open hands so that we might be able to evaluate other crayons, this tradition might be one of those crayons. Another crayon is this. Most of biblical scholarship today believe that the book of Exodus and even the entire Torah was not finalized or put into its final form until at least the exile of the southern kingdom. This means that the story that occurs somewhere between the 15th and 13th centuries BCE was not written down or finished until the 4th or 5th century BCE. Roughly 1,000 years went between this narrative, when this narrative was compiled, and when it happened. I don't say this uh, to cast aspersions on the integrity of the writing, but rather I say this because we learn a lot when we consider the context within which these authors and redactors and compilers lived. These final compilers, we learn, have an agenda. They have a point that they want to get across to their contemporary readers. By the 5th century B.C., the people of God... Israel are once again outside of their home. They've been deported. They've been exiled. Some of them have been enslaved in Babylon, soon to be Persia. The people of God have had their armies conquered. They've had their kings killed and kidnapped. And they have no natural hope of deliverance from this exile. And so their spiritual and emotional leaders tell them a story to give them hope. This story of the Exodus sounds a lot like this exile in Babylon. The the story begins in slavery. The story of the Exodus tells the people of God that while they're in this exile, God might hear their cry. That God can see the injustices that are being perpetrated against them. And that God can prepare a deliverer and deliverance. God can set them free. God can save them. And so this second context tells us what the authors want their readers to know. 
But I do want to explore one more context as we finish up. And to explore this concept, we need to look at the words of Jesus that occur within Matthew 16 and Matthew 18. There Jesus says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. This morning I offer you the meaning of these words within the context of the rabbinical Judaism in which they were written. In this world of rabbinical Judaism, when a man had gone through his years of study and his discipleship and was finally ready to take on the mantle and the title of being a rabbi, he was said to have been given the keys to the kingdom. What this meant was that he was granted the authority to interpret Scripture. A common way that you might hear a rabbi making new interpretations was by saying something like, you've heard it said that blank, but I tell you this. Another way that these rabbis exercise this interpretive authority is through binding and loosing. In this context, binding means to prohibit and to loose means to permit. So as the rabbis decided, for instance, what is and isn't allowed on a Sabbath day, they bound the lighting of a fire. And they loosed a walk away from the home. In this first century, the number of rabbis said to have this authority was between 10 and 20. There's not very many of these rabbis. Jesus had a claim on this authority as a rabbi in the first century, but what he does with this authority is what is really astounding. He says to his, his disciples, I give you the keys to the kingdom. What you bind and what you loose will be bound in heaven. The disciples of Jesus have the authority to interpret the scriptures, to bind and loose as Jesus did. And Jesus says that heaven will honor these decisions. Now, I'm not saying that I have the authority to stand up here in front of you and tell you what the scripture means. I think that would be a gross abuse of the scripture. I do think, though, that within the context, especially of the 18th chapter of Matthew, it says that we as a community through the Holy Spirit, carry this authority. Our community has the authority as disciples to interpret the Scripture. We have the ability and even the imperative to argue and to discern and to decide what the text means to us as a community. We decide what we bind and what we loose. We decide what we decide. We sorry. We decide what we find important to preserve and to proclaim within our community. And so the third context for this Exodus narrative is our own context. Pastor David has said that the text needs to be reinterpreted for every generation. The themes that are established within the narrative of the Exodus carry themselves into the rest of the Bible, but they also carry themselves into our lives. We remember the redemption and the deliverance and the salvation of Israel because we experience redemption and deliverance and salvation. Through the celebration of the Passover Seder, this narrative is remembered in our community every year. We have the four questions of Passover that guide us through this. Where are we enslaved in Egypt? From what do we need to be delivered? Where are we experiencing the death of the wilderness or what needs to die within us? Where do we hear the new calling and the new promise of God? Where is it that we stand on the threshold of this promise?
And how do we walk into that promise? How do we carry what it is that we found forward for the benefit of our family and our community? We have all this because someone wrote something down. We started off the morning with some of the words that Paul wrote down. Remember that it is not you that supports the root, but the root that supports you. We, as a community of God, recognize that this root of Israel is what sustains us. Our core value of text keeps us well-rooted to the stump of Jesse. We understand we come from a faith tradition that celebrates 4,000 years of history at the very least. We understand that approaching this text means that we've thousands of years of context and interpretation from both an Eastern and a Western perspective from which to gain wisdom and insight not only into the text itself, but into our own lives. Someone wrote something down because they had a story worth telling. We wrote something down because we are the ones that have the need for salvation. These stories confess and witness to a God that brings deliverance and redemption and salvation, freedom from slavery and sin and death, and freedom even from ourselves. We wrote this down because we were saved, because we are saved, and because we will continue to be saved. These stories of salvation serve to give us hope, and our own stories give hope to the generations that come after. At this church, we celebrate this text because for us, this text means a participation in the story of God's salvation. It means that we learn this text, we teach this text, we pray this text, we live this text, we wrestle with this text. We haga this text. Please pray with me.